Hi everyone, and welcome to Queer Reflections, the podcast where we discuss queer representation in our visual media, past, present, and future. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen and support this podcast. To find out more and follow along, see at Queer Reflections on Instagram. If you like what you hear, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider. Hi everyone, welcome to Queer Reflections Season 2, Episode 2. I'm really excited about this podcast today. I'm joined by Cameron Bernard-Jones, he's a wonderful person. He is a performing artist based in London at the moment. He is dual national American and British. Now, it was amazing to catch up with Cameron. I've connected with him over Instagram for about a year right now, and he's honestly one of my favorite people to follow. I'm so glad that I managed to connect with him and we got the opportunity to have this chat. He is currently a performer in Punch Drunk's performance of The Burnt City in London. So definitely please check that out. It's running till January. You can also find him on Instagram and Twitter at CBJArts. But without further ado, let's get into the conversation. It's a really good one. I enjoyed this so much and I enjoyed it even more listening to it in the edit. Um, Some really insightful things covered by Cameron. Uh, It was honestly just a joy to experience. So I hope you enjoy it too and I'll see you later. Hi Cameron, how are you doing today? I'm great, how are you doing? Good, thank you, thank you so much for joining me. Where are you based at the moment? You're up in London, right? Yeah, I'm based in London. I've been based in London ever since I've been in this country, um, which is around seven years. So yeah, I'm based in the far south of London, in an area called Purley, which is like just south of Croydon. Yes, it's still London. For those who like don't believe it's London, it's still London. It's, yeah... (laughs) What well, what made you want to move over here? Well, it's quite a long story, but I mean, life and love brought me over here. But um, I so I'm an actor, and my career kind of really just took off in 2014 in Denmark, and so I did an opera called Porgy and Bess in Copenhagen, and that was like I'd say it was my first big break. And with the power of great networking and just being a good colleague, I ended up getting two other um, stage jobs in Austria. Um, And so my career, suddenly it blossomed and it had me over on this side of the Atlantic, obviously professionally. And so just being here on this continent and traveling, um, I was often in the UK and it's where I met my husband. Perfect. It sounds wonderful. And the fact that you're smiling so much. Uh, yeah, it is wonderful. Um, so how long have you been out, if I uh, don't mind me asking? Gosh, so it depends on what your definition of out is. And it, it depends on who. For most people, definitely my experience was that it was very isolating. Or at least, I don't know, I can look back now and think, oh, there are many uh, gay, queer people, but they weren't necessarily out at that time. I don't know. But that's interesting. Did um, so it was a Catholic school. What was kind of teacher response uh, to that? Just because I'm an educator, um, was there a response? Were they aware or? Year ten in the UK, and that was just telling friends, school friends. Yeah. Um, school friends who you realize were also of the same cloth. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it was a big, uh big group of us actually of, from all years in the school and I went to an all-boys Catholic school in um in Newark New Jersey which was very it's very unique anyway and it's a mostly black and Latino uh high school or it was back then it's, it's very diverse now but um so yeah to have many 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 gay black and Latino male friends who you grew up with and grew together with, I'd say it was a big privilege. And so, yeah, that's when I first came out. And then I came out to family, et cetera. Um, I think the first person I came out to 
was my mother and I was 18 then and it was like the springtime then I came out to my dad just before I left for uni and then just like close family but all of them knew all of them didn't care (laughs) and it was like okay moving on thank you for telling us so yeah I I had a very fortunate and I'm privileged to to have had such an easy coming out story no that yeah it sounds wonderful i wouldn't say that mine is the best coming out story however um much people have had many worse but yeah i'm jealous of your lovely story (laughs) so it was a catholic school what was kind of teacher response uh, to that just because i'm an educator um was there a response were they aware or let me think about this so i think it was multi-layered um so from most of the monks it was almost like a lack of response and i don't know if that was sort of a i don't care or i don't i just don't want to know slash be involved with but a lot of the lay teachers many were allies and and great support for us not all but we had a lot of adult support for us young queer men which again is very unique because i feel like you know in in education systems there's this this wall between <laughs> educating academics and educating like life experience and so that's it was it's a part of it yeah um you're raising you're raising children in addition to these people's parents and guardians um, so there was great support that I had from from teachers, most of whom who were not a part of the monastery. But I never, maybe besides like one or two situations, felt any real homophobia, um, any overt homophobia from any of the administration yeah. in my school, which, again, because it's a Catholic school, you probably assume that it would be a lot of pushback etc but if there any if there was any pushback i never saw it directly or heard of it directly no that's amazing yeah i i think it's interesting how when you kind of think about catholic schools and i don't know think about them in in this country i think yeah maybe they would be kind of more against homosexuality because of religion and things like that so to hear that that was the case and not to say that they were promoting it but in the sense of it wasn't an issue that uh, yeah it sounds really promising and like a good start for you to have yeah it, so uh, the the school's called uh saint benedict's prep and a lot of what we were taught is just brotherhood and like true family and just that notion of unconditional love regardless of where you came from what you're upbringing was even your faith because not everyone was even of christian faith um and not everyone was of the catholic uh denomination so yeah it in a sense it was like a utopia ish and even like in our religion classes we have we have religion classes they just they kind of just taught the, the basics and didn't really go into the dogma of everything <laughs> Um, that a lot of people grow up with yeah and are educated in so so yeah i was very fortunate to have gone to that school and to have the experiences that i had as a black queer young adult in the inner city (laughs) in the united states of america (laughs) definitely (laughs) i know and i i I think that's i mean so many people in this country so many people i work with or have on facebook and things i feel like it, america is often the the place that brits kind of point to and almost laugh and think do you know what i mean they're so backwards and there's i keep seeing that meme uh being sent around about like time difference is so weird i don't know rome is like an hour ahead and all this stuff and then it says america's like 49 years behind um i keep seeing that being shared and i think actually there's a lot of problems in the uk that i think we're not necessarily super aware of um how's your experience over here it's been great um it's funny because a lot of my friends especially back in the united states 
um, often referred to me as having made it in air quotes and or escaped, escaped the, the, the U.S. And a lot of people are always like, oh, I'm trying to I'm trying to do the same. Or I would you know love to get out this place. And um, even though the U.K., as we're experiencing today, isn't perfect by far in present and past um i notice a lot of differences even when it just comes to quality of life so my experience in the past seven years i've loved it and it's been the reason why i've stayed i mean obviously i'm staying for for my husband as well because we're we're building a life together as a family but just at on an individual level like i feel like I've been able to blossom here because um, I wasn't quite feeling that in the U.S. as an adult. Although like my adult time in the U.S. has mainly been in uni and just getting out of uni, which are some of the hardest times as an adult. Yeah, no, I, I would agree there. I feel like at university, I was like, I'm going to find myself. And then when I didn't find myself at university, I was like, okay, what now? <laughs> and yeah, so I think... I definitely arrived at university thinking that this was my time to work out who I was. And I think it actually came maybe five years later. And I was like, oh, this is who I'm meant to be. And that, strangely, was me going to America and kind of and having that space to not be, do you know I mean, to be completely in a different place away from family, friends, and to be completely aware of kind of how I am, how I can be. So yeah, that I think that was a big experience. Maybe it's just moving away from kind of what you know helps find yourself. Mm, absolutely. Because a lot of people, I'm from New York originally, and a lot of people are like, why would you ever want to leave? That's where I want to go. But it's like, if you grew up there, then you know there's, and that you know there's more, you want to seek more. And so, yeah, it's, it's the reason why I went to college uni elsewhere i went to, uh, to uni in chicago and it's why i've traveled and it's why i live on a different continent so yeah it's always just going to seek seek more and just expand no i think i think that's a good thing i good i think it's a good thing for anyone as well if you're struggling think about maybe making a big move and yeah i think it's very life-affirming uh, so let's jump into the subject of uh, queer representations. The first question I've got for you today is, when was the first time or the first experience of seeing a queer identity on the screen for you? So I remember my mother had a, on VHS, <laughs> I'm that old, um, this film called Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. That's the full title. And I mean, she showed me and my brother this and we were young and it was just one of those films that we constantly played. First of all, it's just an iconic film, period. Regardless of who you are, what your sexual identity is, whatever. It's just really good. It's a good cultural moment. But it was one of the first times where I was like, I think I'm like these people. And I didn't have the words for it back then because i want to say i was in my adolescence like pre-teenage years my brother and me but I, there was something that i just it resonated with me the the theater of it all the extravagance and the the character Noxima jackson who was played by wesley snipes i really saw myself in her um when because she was black like simple simple as that and Again, having grown up in New York and because it was set in New York and a lot of things just look familiar and, you know, you walk around the city, you've seen these type, these beings. <laughs> um, so it wasn't even strange. It just it was so familiar and it really resonated with me. And that was from what I can remember. Probably the first. In media altogether, um, and it was in film and it definitely wasn't on a sitcom. A television sitcom. I think that came much later. What was the family response then to that at that time? Obviously, you said that it was your mum who let you watch it or put it on for you. Um, so what what sort of acceptance did you have towards that? 
Uh, oh, one hundred percent. I mean, again, like it was my mother that that showed it to us. My mother is <laughs> a huge ally of our community. Has always been and will always be. And I think she knew that both me and my brother were were queer um, at that point. And so it was just, it was nothing. It was nothing. And so my mom and dad have always been separated. So it wasn't like a a joint family thing. Um, this was just when we were with her. But like, even my dad, like it's never been an issue when it came to these types of things it, it, again i'm just i'm i have to stress i'm so lucky with my family um especially being a black family a black american family and that the the stigma of being queer was not as heavy as it is in a lot of other people's families um so when it comes to growing up and you know you grow up a lot through media yeah um through television and film and i got to see films yeah like tu wong fu and many many others that had either queer characters or queer storylines and even if i didn't know my own identity then i think subconsciously it helped affirm me and yeah it, it it showed me that my family, like in hindsight, it, it showed me that my family affirmed me back then. No, that's lovely. And I think you, we use the things around us to kind of construct us, even if we don't know it. So what was the most significant text for you then in terms of a queer representation? So I remember the show on MTV called The Real World. And I was obsessed with the real world. The real world. I saw like every city, but the city that stands out to me the most is the Philadelphia season that had Karamo, who is now a part of the new Queer Eye uh, cast and series. And so, back then, Karamo was unass- unassuming. You would have assumed that he was straight, a straight. Uh, straight black guy and so when he came out on the show that he was gay I I remember how controversial and shocking and surprising and everything it was um, for everybody because we only had this one idea of what gay people were gay men especially and here was this (laughs) air quotes straight acting because what is that guy on tv saying he's gay full stop not even by gay and so i i remember that and even though um back in high school i was kind of like femme of center presenting and acting or whatever like i was just like oh my goodness yeah here we are on tv and there's there's so many other ways we are <laughs> yeah and can be and it'd be okay and it'd be accepted so yeah i think that was definitely a cultural reset in 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 television history in media history i'd say for queer representation and yeah i didn't know he was on mtv's the real world yeah and it's funny that that season philadelphia there were two two gay characters him and oh, I forgot the other guy's name. He was Latino. And so they were, yeah, two gay male characters. And so the other character was, quote, obvious. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's where Karamo started. How, if you remember, how was the reaction at the time? Did MTV know um, about these actors being gay or was it something that was revealed after? Or I'm pretty sure producers at MTV knew, like, you know they always do this vetting and so they probably know your deepest darkest secrets and they capitalize on it of course and back then that was that was huge huge again and i have to say this because he was black and because he was very masked it just it i just i remember people constantly talking about it constantly and it made people think like Oh, anybody could be gay. <laughs> you can't just assume. How's your experience as a queer actor? Oh, it's been great because I'm in theater, which is like a whole different world. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of people look at theater and it's like, well, it's mostly women and queer queer people anyway. But obviously it's all sorts of people in the theater industry. But if you think about stereotypes and a man in theater, you think, well, he, 
nine times out of ten are they gonna be queer i don't know the statistics i don't care but so my experiences being gay in my industry i'm fine there there will always be issues (laughs) don't get me wrong (laughs) don't get me wrong there will always be issues um because even in our lovely rainbow community there's segregation and all sorts of crap that happens <laughs> between the letters, between races, and all of that. So, yes. Um, on the surface level, yes, my experience <laughs> in theater has been great. I'm able to be who I am, open about it. I can shout from the rooftops if I want, or I don't have to. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I'm really glad you've kind of brought up that lens in terms of intersectionality. And I think that it's not spoken about enough in this country. And yeah, I, I, I find it very frustrating because these conversations are just not happening enough. And also at a level where, do you know I mean, they're not just happening, they're not happening in schools. And that to me seems like a key opportunity where you there's so much opportunity in that time to kind of uh, tackle these topics tackle these conversations understand what privilege is understand intersectionality and how do you know what I mean there are multiple things that are working together within kind of this patriarchal society very very problematic and I think that hopefully media is helping that now i know that shows like i feel like every every episode of this podcast i mentioned rupaul's drag race and it's not it, i promise you it's not like a, a fan account or anything like that a fan podcast but there seems to be more discussions at least in terms of kind of the american series about black queerness on there um and i think there's some really enlightening stories about how tough it is to be queer in some black communities and i think that's that's really interesting to see but yeah not enough and i I think not enough in this country specifically as well um that would be good to see how do you feel about that what would you like to see um within those spaces what do you think's missing and what do you think could kind of help well, I mean, across the board, well, okay, let's, okay, let's, let's be real. So when we talk about modern day queer identity, um, and because you brought up RuPaul's Drag Race, we, let's just keep, keep going with it. I, I, I love, I love the series. I always have, and probably always will, um, problems aside. But when we talk about, uh, contemporary queer identity, especially in North America and Europe alone, a lot of it is based off of black queer culture. Mm-hmm. period um a lot of our lingo which has now become worldwide lingo <laughs> by regardless of who you are um started in the underground cultures of of a black and latino new york city you know i, I mean let's again i mentioned storm before let's go back it would you know marsha p johnson etc at all started the the movement and so and and, and a lot of what helped move <laughs> our communities forward were these figureheads who were black trans women and a lot of the culture that was underground for so quite a a long time and even shunned by a lot of white white gay gay people suddenly had an emergence through media and 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 it was it's wonderful it is so wonderful i'm so glad i can watch shows like queer eye drag race uh it's a sin i mean keep naming them pose so glad even you know the film um paris is burning documentary from paris is burning and the others that came out it's it's so amazing and it's so needed but i think a lot of people forget where it's all based and the very thing that people now can capitalize off of those people or the descent the 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 offspring of those people many of them still suffer and many of them are still in shadows and that's the part that it 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 always it always irks me and hurts like and this is not me saying oh if you're not uh if you're not black or brown you can't be using lingo it's it's not me saying that but it's i will always stress just kind of just know know your history I think we as human beings, we just always need to know our history anyway. Um, but 
queer com- queer community at large, we need to really, really know all the history and where these things are come f- coming from and everything. And because Drag Race is global now, everybody everybody has has a bit of our culture which is again it's beautiful but it also also makes me go do you actually know what you're saying <laughs> so like uh, uh yeah yeah it, i can go on forever about it but i just i think the education behind a lot of this because it's not it's not that old this <laughs> is still very recent history where all this came from um needs to be reinforced in our community and then of course outside of our community as well i don't know if that even answered the question i know it was probably a tangent but i think it's so important yeah i was just thinking uh, it's really for me kind of as a teacher perspective it's really nice to see students that are 17 18 arriving in my classroom with a really good understanding of queer culture and i feel like they're almost miles ahead of where I where I even am now in terms of understanding that. So maybe that's really promising going forwards. Like I am seeing students make work almost inspired by kind of queer ballroom culture or, or just like very switched on to things like PrEP, AIDS crisis and all these things that I think I'm only just really kind of understanding and, and starting to understand and understand the impact of and shows like Pose really opened my eyes to a lot of things and which I found really helpful to almost see visually and I, I think I always I studied representation a lot at university and read a lot of bell hooks who I, whom I love and who sadly passed away I think it was uh, last year which was really sad so I had a really good kind of understanding of that but I think Pose really uh, showed me quite starkly how that played out within the AIDS crisis and I remember specifically there's an episode where Blanca goes to a gay bar and is immediately kicked out and it's like dominated by white gays and it, to me now it's like it's mind numbing do you know what I mean it's like like really like we should all be in this queer community and we should not be exclusion exclusionary and all this stuff but yeah so obviously that happened and those still happens uh and the prides that i see are usually dominated by white men uh white usually skinny men if we're talking about body image as well um so again another lens to look through in terms of body image um but yeah what you're saying about kind of black culture and those terms yeah when i started this project probably over a year ago now i came across a book called the queen's english i don't know if you've heard of it absolutely um yeah and it's one of my favorite things i'm looking right at it on my bookshelf (laughs) yeah me too um shout out to chloe o davis who was the author (laughs) honestly so eye-opening and the amount of people I've lent that book to and I promote it in any talks I do because I think it is a really useful tool to understand how language has a one evolved uh, if anything is kind of problematic and also just to work out where things come from as well and yeah majority of the words in that book kind of come from uh, black queer culture New York etc and uh, super interesting and I and it's also a beautiful book in terms of design and everything so i recommend that to literally everyone that i meet in terms of just wanting to understand yeah so i definitely would recommend that book to everyone but yeah i second that go get that book (laughs) go get that book yeah hi everyone i just wanted to take a second to talk about our sponsors this season at ethos made Ethos Made specialise in making eco-friendly, sustainable and non-toxic coconut wax candles on the northern coast of Cornwall. Recently they have released a prideful collection with three pride flag inspired candles that smell and look amazing. And even cooler is the fact that a portion of the proceeds goes to specific LGBTQIA charities. There's the traditional pride flag candle with proceeds going to the Say It Loud Club whose work helps LGBTQIA refugees seek asylum in the UK from countries where you can be persecuted for being a member of the community. There's the trans flag candle 
which supports Gendered Intelligence, a trans-led and trans-involving charity that works to increase understandings of gender diversity and improve the lives of trans people. Their vision is a world where diverse gender expressions are visible and valued, and where trans, non-binary, gender diverse and gender questioning people live healthy, safe and fulfilled lives. There's also the Lesbian Flag Candle, which supports the Kaleidoscope Trust, who work to fund, fight for and empower those upholding the human rights of LGBT people by working with governments, change makers and civil society organisations to effect meaningful and lasting change in the lives of LGBTQIA people everywhere. Each candle is a wonderful refreshing scent called Pomelo and Pink Fizz. They provide extensive burn times, they last around 50 to 55 hours each. The scent is a nice, sweet fragrance that mixes sparkling champagne with sweet grapefruit, rhubarb and juicy watermelon. You can find them at ethosmade.co.uk, that is E-T-H-O-S-M-A-D-E.co.uk or at their Instagram, at ethosmade, so that's at E-T-H-O-S underscore M-A-D-E. And remember to quote QR at the checkout to get 10% off your order. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our sponsors. Now let's get back to it. So let's jump into another question. Do you think representations are getting better moving forwards for you personally? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is moving forward. Um, I, I don't know the rate uh, at which I, I think it's slower than slower than we might per, first perceive. Um, I, I mean, but everything's relative. You know, we it's always I, I always compare it to how things were a decade ago. I mean, even five years ago, pre pandemic, you know, there's so many markers you can use to measure the rate of progression. But I think when it comes to queer representation in all sorts of media we definitely are moving forward um but we need to take a closer lens a closer look say at to uh what sort of representation is actually out there and and how um how very kind of singular layered it is (laughs) and we just have to be careful that what we think is representation isn't just one big tick box to say, oh, did that, and that it keeps evolving. I think the nuance is really important, that it's not just a tick box, and that it's done right. And I don't know whether that comes from having queer creators behind this, this behind the camera, behind, I mean, writing the stories. Do you find that within kind of the theatre scene? Uh, I rolled my eyes for those who can't see. Um, <laughs> I was like, "Oh no, what have I said?" <laughs> no, it wasn't you. It, you know, the the misconception is that theater is so progressive in everything, and it really isn't. I hate to say that, but I can say that. And there are many other podcasts, blogs, etc., that talk about this. Um, and I mean, just theater, theater in the UK. Let's just talk about that. <laughs> in a country that is relatively progressive um but a lot of our industries across the board are still just very austere and actual progression seems really hard to come by what do you mean by actual the the notion of it is wonderful and it's always welcomed because this is this is the united kingdom you can come here anybody can come here and 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 work and 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 be successful and thrive but i think we all know the truth around that i don't even have to go into that but anyway back to the theater industry this sort of conversation in terms of representation in theater has been happening for years and years and years and was really accentuated in the summer of 2020 um when our industry was shut down completely in the pandemic and a lot of us had a lot of time to really look think and act and reflect and so a lot of a lot of companies a lot of producers etc were making these pledges to really change and that change was going to be seen in who was employed especially and what sort of stories were created yeah and it seemed like it was going to be fine and you know people get lazy industry opens back up 
then you realize it's all about the money and then you forget about certain things that you made pledges to and this isn't i'm not even just talking about the the people up top as we say i'm talking about people on, on all levels so even colleagues of mine white colleagues who were reaching out and expressing solidarity and empathy etc and um then you start to see that when things die down it's easy to just go back to what you're used to and if as long as you're progressing then it's fine <laughs> so no I, I think theater out of all creative industries is probably the most behind especially when you compare it to television and film in terms of especially in terms of the stories that are created and told how those stories are cast um theater is very behind across the board so i i don't know why it move it's moving so slowly i think there are a lot of other theater giants who are still holding on they're dinosaurs and they are still holding on and they need to just go i won't name any names but those of you in the industry who are listening i'm pretty sure you already know who i'm examples of whom i'm talking about and it's hard when you have people who have been in this in this industry for so long and are operating in past ways it's hard for any sort of progression but when you come from an industry that was mostly led by white by white people of a certain class because that has a lot to do with it too and they're still in power and there's a very small small community of them who have all the power then it's hard to to move forward and that's that's with all the protesting and all the tweets and all the Instagram stories and all the accounts and all that. Um, but I think we can really look to film industry, which, of course, isn't perfect either. Hashtag Oscars so white in the past. But like, I think those industries, those sectors are progressing much faster than the theater industry globally. Why do you think that is? Do, do you think there is a specific reason or do you? I, I, I think there's a, a, a welcoming of fresh blood of new ideas and a willingness to move on i think a lot of people actually don't want to progress there we're gonna talk about that there are, are people who literally do not want progression because they feel like it would threaten them and their power definitely yeah that feels very very real we call that the enemy of progress <laughs> and it, I, I think what makes those people worse is the facade of progression and do you mean this like we will try or we will do this but like you know underneath that they have their feet firmly in the ground yeah not wanting to move because they are in a a, a, what seems to them a good position and i I think what makes that even more frustrating is when those individuals are do you mean gay gay men uh who have experienced the hardship of being gay and then got to a point where it is a non-issue and therefore have stopped and will stop because they don't want to threaten that position by by linking with, say, the trans community. But that's interesting. So within kind of the London theatre scene, do you think there is any representations of, of queerness going on in, in terms of stories? Very little. <laughs> You know, you have your staples. Okay, let, I mean, let's look at Hairspray, for example. Um, I'd say that Ed... Uh, oh, gosh, what's the... <laughs> Don't murder me, y'all. Um, Ch- Tracy Turnblad's mother, Ed- Edna, yeah. Ed- yeah, originated by um, Harvey Fe- Feierstein. You could say that's a queer character. <laughs> uh, what's another reference I can... Uh, Kinky Boots. Uh, La Cage Fall, etc. Um, but if you look at all those shows, it's almost all the same type or the, the, the characters can fit in the same bubble. And that's kind of the danger of, uh, of what musical theater queer representation is. It's, you have these queer tropes, these very flamboyant tropes. It's what it is. Um, and it's fine. It's it's made some great pieces <laughs> using those tropes. But in terms of that, the diversity within our community, there's no, it's not. It's not a lot of that in theater in general, um, especially in commercial theater. I'd say the closest 
that I've seen uh, came with the play The Inheritance um, that I saw in 2019. Matthew Lopez is a play and is both in the West End and in on Broadway. It it made me sob. It was just so real. It, it was like I, I literally saw myself in a couple of the characters on stage. It's very few, and again, like like you said, there's there's a presumption that theater and musical theater, especially, is a queer space. Yes, in terms of who's employed, and people aren't employed because of their queerness, but it just happens to be that a lot of queer people are in that industry. Um, a lot of openly queer people, especially, but in terms of stories that are made, no. It's not a lot at all, at all. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of other things. I mean, even in terms of like everybody's talking about Jamie, um, that, yeah, I mean, it again fits within that kind of those tropes, doesn't it? Of, I don't know, it, it is obviously a new a new story and there's a lot of good things about everybody's talking about Jamie, but it does also feel like it follows similar tropes as Kinky Boots in terms of, do you know what I mean? Those sort of elements of, I don't know, like, air-quoting drag culture, but it's, it's like, it's barely the top layer. Oh, yeah. So... You, if you get a queer uh, character in a theater piece, rarely do you get nuance. Um, it's just, and again, because you're trying to fit it in two and a half hours <laughs> with other characters as well. But there are ways to do it. And there are many theater pieces that were made um, that do talk about these things, but a lot of them just aren't popular. I mean, even, even if you look at um, uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, you know, again, same type of story-esque you know um yeah and again a lot of these well all of those characters of the shows that i mentioned are white with the exception of um the maid in, in lacage who is normally cast or has been popularly cast as someone black and queer um but that's a minor character compared to the two main characters <laughs> who are both white men and it was, you know, it was translated into the film, the birdcage who were played by white men on film. And, you know, it, yeah. So, I mean, maybe if you spoke to some, uh, a white queer, just a cisgender man in theater, they might have a different perspective, but for mine, no, it's not a lot. It's not a lot at all. Like I, for me in my career, I, I first got to really play a character who was as close to my own, queerness as possible um in the whiz as the whiz um and that was at my own discretion and the discretion of the creatives and the openness of of everyone on the team for me to just bring my my full self my authentic self because who says the whiz can't be that <laughs> you know and, and and i think it took um the whiz live on um the nbc network in the states and they cast The Wiz as Queen Latifah, who herself is a queer icon, um, as The Wiz, who was always seen from the book to the film The Wizard of Oz as a man, um, to really open my mind, <laughs> forget everybody else's mind, my mind to the fact that the, the character of The Wizard slash The Wiz in this adaptation of it can be other than white heterosexual you know and so that was the i'd say the, the very first time i really got to to tap into that and the show i'm currently in i i get to to pull from that in many different ways as well um and so i almost don't want to go back of course like i don't feel like i only need to play queer characters but the fact that i can now pull from my own queerness and my own queer experiences and pour those into the characters whether that be on a minute level or on a or a completely maximum level i really enjoy that and i only hope that i can do it more and that so many other of my colleagues can as well i guess as part of your toolkit as an actor that you can pull it from those life experiences and that opportunity for many queer actors is so rare to be able to 
kind of pull your own experiences in terms of your queerness so I, yeah I, I can understand why you maybe don't want to go back because of that kind of that feeling and that almost euphoria of oh this is a job I mean this is really nice to play and play in this space or even even if I don't play it um out loud I can draw from it like even the the that simple thing of being able to draw from experience <laughs> it's so enriching in terms of so media on the tv is there anything you watched when you were younger or even recently and thought oh that did not age well i mean in terms of being specific about of queer representation no because there wasn't a lot of it back in my day um (laughs) but i do know that a lot of the kind of um a lot of the uh queer like supporting characters especially on tv sitcoms they were all the same trope they were flamboyant loud and non-white whether they're asian black hispanic whatever and they were off, you know, they were often comedic relief. We didn't know a lot about them. So it doesn't answer your, your question about whether they aged well. But I think if we look at the constant casting of those those figures in those old TV sitcoms from the late 90s and early 2000s, we'd go, okay, y'all in the writer's room could have done better than that. Because um, they were just all the same <laughs> um and again I, I can't even remember the characters names at all but they were there for the laughs and i think we all know that not only were people laughing the audience laughing at the scripts but also laughing at the character and how flamboyant they were and oh isn't that funny oh isn't that absurd oh isn't that just so strange and so other <laughs> nobody's really like this and it's just like okay yeah so yeah 90 not late 90s early 2000s portrayal of um queer people of color didn't age well <laughs> doesn't age well yeah i mean i i like that i think the fact that there's not a significant one and it is a whole broad range of kind of those representations yeah, it says a lot, and but we all remember Jack from Will and Grace. <laughs> I'll just put it out there. <laughs> what do you want from queer representation going forwards? Write more stories about more types of people in our community. Full stop. There's a plethora of inspiration for you to pull from those who are creators across the board in the industries plethora especially as the time moves on more and more people are coming out for lack of better terms and more more people are expressing their very unique ways of being and so when it comes to storytelling whether that be through literature film tv theater all the media (laughs) um across the arts because that's the world i come from the the inspirations are infinite and so those there's there's no reason for there to be a lack of representation in storytelling there's no reason especially in in 2022 so that's what i want i just i want a wider range of stories to be told we won't solve we we won't answer everyone's burning desires to see themselves immediately, but the more and more people do it, and the more and more um, gates that are held open by the gatekeepers of, of various storytellers to tell other stories, that also helps. That will help, and we can see a whole rainbow <laughs> of 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 stories and experiences shared across the world. I'm smiling because one, it's a very, very uh, good point to end on. And two, you said about gatekeeping and gatekeepers. And I think that's really to the point and something that we, I, I teach and is very important in terms of exams. Um, 
it's a very key theory um, to kind of think about who's actually gatekeeping this material and maybe that's where the conversation needs to lie. So, I mean, is it the BBC? Is it kind of different places? Maybe the problems lie within those spaces, who's in charge, who's commissioning and things like that. I know I said last question, but one's just come to mind. If you had to recommend a piece, whatever that be, a film, a, a, a TV show, so I mean a book, to someone listening that helped you understand your queer identity or would kind of opened your eyes up to a piece of queer culture, what would that be? Oh, easy. I was going to rack my brain, but this is what I tell everyone. It's standard. You just watch Paris is Burning. It, if if you don't watch anything else, and I will tell that to anyone, regardless of their um, identity, watch Paris is Burning. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram at cbjarts. Those are my initials, Cameron Bernard-Jones, CBJ Arts. I'm also on Twitter at the same handle. Um, I'm not on TikTok or Snapchat. So, yeah, you can find me there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where are you performing at the moment? I'm performing in The Burnt City, which is a show by the company Punch Drunk. It's an immersive theater show and that we are performing in Woolwich in Southeast London. And when is that until... Uh, until January 2023. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing. Thank you. I'm so glad to be a part of this conversation and I can't wait to hear more. amazing episode thank you so much to Cameron for taking the time to speak to me I'm honestly thrilled with the conversation we had and it's given me a lot of food for thought for this project as Cameron said you can find him at CBJ Arts on Instagram and Twitter and you can also find him performing in Punch Drunks The Burnt City through January 2023 that's it for today's episode thank you so much for listening I'll see you on the next one thank you to Ethos Made our sponsor and everyone who has supported the creation of this podcast we'll see you soon and take care enjoy the weather stay cool if you can